Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Brian Whittington with this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. We have a real treat today. Jeremy Donovan is joining us today, and we're going to be talking about the data science of prospecting. So the data science of prospecting, and the reason that we have Jeremy on the show is he's not only the SVP, Senior VP of Sales at SalesLoft, he's an adjunct professor over at NYU. He's done a couple of things. And my goodness, if you're not following him on LinkedIn with all of the resources he's, that he's bringing to bear to help us out in this sales endeavor, uh, you got to check him out. So with all, that said, Jeremy, can't thank you enough for joining us here. Welcome. Thank you so much, Brian. Excited to be on. It's good to be on the other side of the mic too. <laughs> Absolutely. So but let's, let's start off with this first question is, you know, knowing your background, everything you have, you know, it should be obvious, but I guess the first question is whenever we're looking at data science of prospecting and what does it truly mean to lead with value, to bring value in every single conversation, what makes you such an expert? Why should we listen to you? Yeah, well, I was when you ask why should anyone listen to me, I guess I was going to ask my family and they would say no one should listen to me. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, even more broadly, like I think I am I am one voice among many that you should take as an input in the way that you sell, right? So my particular voice is, as you suggested, is a very data-driven voice uh, and data, both qualitative and quantitative. So on the, on the obvious quantitative side, I do some of my own analytics and data science. I tap into the data science and analytics team at SalesLoft to come up with advice for people on how they should be prospecting, how they should be engaging customers. Uh, and then on the on the qualitative side, I am a voracious reader of fiction, nonfiction, you know, you name it. So in the nonfiction realm, especially, I try to get my hands on every decent sales book. It's rare that I'll read one and give up. I actually did give up on one for the first time in a long time recently, which was kind of a disappointment, but I usually read them cover to cover. And then I extract from that little, little nuggets, right. Of, uh, uh, you know, how to actionable information. And then I guess if I had to give a third justification for why folks should listen to me is I'm actually more of a buyer than a seller. Uh, so, right. Mo a lot of my energy is, is spent making decisions about what we should be buying, how we should be empowering, enabling, whatever word you want to use, our own our own sales team. And most of my career has been spent kind of more in buying and than, than in selling mode. So I think, you know, I, I, I try to come with the perspective of a buyer as opposed as opposed to like this, this necessarily the salesperson's perspective. Let's start with that last one, that more of a buyer than a seller, because I noticed that you made a comment not not too long ago about the challenger buyer. And you said, hey, I'd like to find some alternative language to the challenger sale or the challenger buyer. And that's what really made me think of you as in reading the challenger buyer or the challenger customer, I guess is the right language, language there. Um, it, it seems incumbent upon us as sellers to figure out what in the world is that buying going buyer going through and putting ourselves in their shoes and how do we best, so I'll, I'll ask that one is, how are you going about doing that today? Because you said, hey, I, I think we should change up the language. So talk to us a little bit about you as the buyer. How are you putting yourself in their shoes or getting it from their perspective? 
Yeah, and I guess just for a little more context on that one, I think I, I had I was thinking the other day because one of my colleagues asked me, what's the difference between sales methodology, sales process, and this other thing that we were trying to name? And that other thing was basically the difference between relationship selling, um, consultative selling, and, and what has been called challenger uh, selling. And I originally had described those as styles but some, I don't know if it was you or someone else commented really presciently on LinkedIn that you should actually think of them as approaches. And I, I really like that because style implies like that is your style and there's something fixed about it. And um, approach is, I think, better because it's flexible. It says, hey, I need to change my approach based on the current buyer at the at the present time. And I'm lifting another framework there, which is from outside of sales, the situational leadership framework, which is basically that, you know, you coach to the will and the skill of the individual on the current project at the given time. So lifting from the leadership world and applying that to sales, it's like, I'm going to sell uh, in, in I'm going to adapt my selling approach to the given prospect at the given time. So what does that mean? It means that like I, as a buyer, am sometimes, uh, uh, you know, I guess I'd like to think that relationship doesn't matter too much to me as a buyer, but it probably does, you know, like I think I'm influenced by uh, subconsciously by the relationship and the, the level of trust that I feel in somebody. And I think that the relationship is not, let's go, I don't play golf, but if I play golf, like it's not that, it's not go to a sports game, it's, it's, it's not any of that. What the relationship is, is that I trust the seller has my back, right, that they're going to sell me something that is, um, is going to to be useful to me. Um, and in particular, right? I mean, I think buyer's biggest fears is like, it's not the money you spend on the product. It's if the, if the, what you spend the money on is part of a larger product project, sorry, project, and that project fails, your job is at risk. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot more at stake for buyers than just like the, that transaction, right? It's, it is something much, much bigger. So I think the trust is in that it's, are you going to help me succeed? not just with the implementation of your product, but are you gonna help me succeed in the initiative that I'm that I'm working on? Um, and so sometimes I'm in that mode, right? And then sometimes uh, as a buyer, right? I am in, um, you know, I, I appreciate the consultative thing is like a doctor, right? So the doctor is gonna come in, you know, help. I might know I have a problem, but I don't know the root cause of that problem and I don't know how to fix it. So that's what a consultative seller does is they sort of, they come in, they help identify a problem that you probably already know you have. And then they're going to recommend, um, you know, they're gonna tell you your root cause is X and, and help you fix it. Um, I'm thinking about, I mean, talk about putting those two things together. Uh, one time uh, I wanted to provide a different view on, on an opportunity, right? The, the traditional view of an op is, is by stage in, right. in your CRM. And I wanted to provide more of a deal scorecard view. I wanted to take all those fields and I wanted to reconfigure them into like a medic like scorecard. Um, and, and just, just for the, the audience, a lot of people might not know medic. Can you hit that real quick? Um, by the yeah, way, yeah, check out so, Jeremy's uh, review of that, but yeah. Can you hit medic real quick? Oh so uh, yeah. There is a, there about? is a, there are a couple of medic books out there, but medic is, is, uh, is, is a framework that's been around for a long time. It's the, a more, spelled out version of BANT, right? Which people may be familiar with budget, authority, need, and timing. Medic is another sales 
methodology. We talked about methodologies, processes, and approaches. So it's another sales methodology, and it stands for metrics, economic buyer, decision process, decision criteria, identified pain, um, champion, and competition. And the C's can sometimes mean different things, but that, that's kind of a, a, a typical uh, a typical uh, enumeration of of medic. So I wanted to group these these opportunity items under those categories as opposed to stages. And I went to a vendor and I said, like, hey, can you help me do this? And like they identified, you know, what you know, I had a, what was it I was trying to accomplish is win more deals. And um, in this case, this vendor actually, and they they want infinite respect for me for this, but they actually said, look, you can do this on your own. Just have your Salesforce admin do it this way, which yeah. I thought was awesome. Um, and the company is Squid, S-K-U-I-D. Uh, and like, you know, they've gotten years of PR value, I guess, out of me for for having 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 done that. And I will, you know, I have a degree of trust in them that they have my back, you know, and and would purchase from them because I, I believe they're going to do, I mean, obviously it's going to vary salesperson to salesperson, but, but they have my back. So, you know, we talked about relationship selling. We talked about consultative selling. Then there was this other thing, and I almost wish there weren't a proprietary way of describing it, but challenger selling. And like, I think the first two are the more normal modes and, and consultative selling, especially the most normal mode. Uh, challenger selling is, is, is I have an opportunity that you're not, that you don't know about that you're not taking advantage of. And I'm gonna, uh, you know, like I'm gonna teach you about it. I'm going to tailor that to your needs, and then I'm going to take control and help you. That's that's challenger, teach, tailor, take control, and I'm gonna walk you through it. I think that's super rare. Like, I, I mean, I don't know that I have, I can't recall ever having bought something where um, I didn't, I didn't have a need. I didn't know my need, right? right. Where someone just said, hey, like this is gonna triple your business, come do this. And I didn't know about it. I don't know that that's ever happened. So I don't know how common, I don't know how common that is in truth. It, like it's, it's exciting in pa on paper, but in truth, I don't, I don't really see it. So I have uh, the picture of Chet Holmes that um, pyramid were 3%, 7%, 30, 30, and 30, right? 3% ready to buy right now, seven looking in the next quarter or so. And then you have 30% that aren't, are oblivious that they even have a problem or you know, haven't thought about this whatsoever. 30% that it's not in the cards whatsoever or 30% that just bought. So I had that, that pyramid in my mind. And our business on, I would say the demand generation side might be where you catch the people before you're at that 65, 75% of the way down the buyer's journey, if we can get demand generation where we were hitting them with a the commercial insights, like, as they suggest, or getting them off a status quo, because that's the real challenge is how do you get them off a status quo? And I think that's where it plays. But to go back to what you were saying earlier in that sales method, methodology or approach, I think you nailed it. And what you said is, I don't think it's relationship selling, right? That's just... I, if I'm in enough pain or this is a big enough issue, I'm not necessarily even going to like you. I just need to trust you enough that you're not going to get me fired or that you can absolutely solve this. And so I think what you said earlier is that it comes down to the trust. And I'm curious, in the use of data, 
to do this prospecting, is that where we can maybe pull in some trust and even tie into that uh, consumer insight or commercial insight? Is that how we can pull it together to maybe more effectively and more easily build the trust? Yeah, I mean, the way these things tie together, I think, is you, you hear often hear people who prognosticate on sales uh, <laughs> say you have to add value, add value at every step of the, of the customer journey. And when you ask them how, I find there's often not a good answer. And I think salespeople really struggle with that. Like, how do I actually add value? And and what, you know, I think unfortunately what companies will often do is the marketing team gets involved and says like, here's value, but what it is is bottom of the funnel content, right? It's a case study, it's an ROI calculator, it's right. It's something that that's that that is so self-serving for the company that I don't think it objectively adds value. Again, putting myself in the buyer's shoes, like I ask myself, uh, what because that's all I can really do. Uh, I, I, I ask myself, what would give me value, or what have reps done for me that added value to me in the past? And um, for me, that is give me something absolutely actionable. Give me something that I can put into place right now, whether I do business with you or not. And then because I'm wired the way I am, I would hope that there's some data to justify that that's the right thing to do. So that to me, um, quote unquote, data-driven prospecting, I mean, there's sort of a few facets to it, but one of them is is like bringing data as value. And another one though is, is uh, you know, is using data in order to inform what you do um, so that you're a little bit, you know, you get a little edge. You gain a small edge uh, in a very, very noisy, in a very, very noisy world. So, um, you know, again, just to make it even, I can't say how, and then, and then still speak in generalities. So like, <laughs> here, here's a specific, right? So I used to be in marketing before I was in sales and along came HubSpot's website grader. And you just go to like, Greater, I don't even know whether it's what, what it was. It's like greater.something.com, probably greater.hubspot.com or whatever it was. I don't, I, it, it still exists. And like that thing, you just put in your website and it then, it then does a whole series of like tests. And two minutes later, you get a scorecard of what's working and not working and what you need to do to tune your website to get, you know, better conversion, better traffic, whatever. Like that's, I think that's data-driven value. It's actionable. And I could take that and then I could tune my site right away, whether or not I do business with them. So, so that's a good example of that. And then, so how, how can, you know, I lift that for, for my world. So, you know, at SalesLoft, we sell to salespeople. So I'm constantly racking my brain. How, how do I come up with something that is the sales world equivalent of the website grader? And, and, and then give that to our sellers so that when they're when they're knocking on the door of the prospect, they're not also just, hey, you know, this is Jeremy from Sales Loft. We do XYZ. Can can you take a 15 minute meeting with me? Yeah. Like everybody does that. Or hey, this is Jeremy from Sales Loft. Here's a here's a case study. Here's a testimonial. Here's a whatever. Here's a super self-serving piece of content. Let's have let's have a meeting. I think that's the wrong, like, I don't want to be prospected that way. And it is sort of prospect unto others as they would have prospected unto themselves or as you would have prospected <laughs> unto yourself, right? The golden rule or the platinum rule. So, so like we created a bunch of, of these things that salespeople can go out and give value. So a good example of that is subjectlinegrader.com. 
um, totally free, right? You go to subjectlinegrader.com, you put in a subject line, it grades it. It's a pretty, pretty uncleverly named web experience. <laughs> And uh, it will use data science. This is where data comes in, right? Like you're giving value, but you're using data. It uses data science to figure out, should this be longer, shorter? Is this the right word? Is it the right capitalization? Should you use punctuation? Should you use numbers? Should you use like whatever? Um, so but, so putting, so that, that's what I mean is, is like that is a form of value. I'll give you another form of value, which is, and I'll shut up, <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I want to give you guys a couple of concrete examples. Another form of value is, um, is executive or peer-to-peer -peer introductions. Among the most valuable things a salesperson could do for me is to introduce me to a peer for a one-on-one -on -one conversation because I'm going to learn so much from that person. And it, it, you know, we're going to talk. I'm going to have a conversation about all kinds of things, not necessarily just that vendor, but it's going to reflect well on that vendor. So that's a way to give to give value in a way that, again, I don't necessarily have to use their product, but they will have established trust with me. And again, I'm using the general sense of data that that's probably more qualitative data right quote unquote having a conversation right. with somebody it's a sort of robotic way of describing human interaction but it's qualitative data and and there's value in that as well yeah and, and so a couple of things is from that subject line greater and you're also doing book reviews and you're also making applications so you're summing this up for for salespeople and then also laying out all the data that you're finding so people can take this and and, and use it right so making making it actionable and i think that's one of the things that you've done really really well so have let's talk about the the process to be able to do that have it, are you just naturally gifted that way with that almost solution thinking is there a personality type that you are or have you trained yourself to be able to do this i'll say i'll say no to naturally gifted uh yes to personality type and and uh i guess not intentionally train myself, you know, the, the, the backs, the sort of the, the, the way humans are right. The way people are so much of the time is, is a response to how they failed in the past. Right. Or is, yeah. is there attempt to overcome some sort of deficiency? So if I wind my own clock back to my own deficiencies, um, I didn't read my first book cover to cover until I was 15 years old. Uh, and I came from a, a family of readers, my mom, my dad, my brother, all voracious, absolutely voracious readers. And I was, I was the odd, odd one out in that night. Who knows why? I mean, maybe, maybe it was, uh, it's cliche, you know, to call yourself this or that, but probably I was ADHD as a kid. So that I, I, I would assume that was probably why, but who knows, who cares at the point is I didn't read till I was 15. So once I, you know, once I caught the bug, I've never stopped. And I'm reading, you know, I'm reading, as I said earlier, constantly. So it's not, it's, but it was, you know, it was sort of to overcome, I think, an early, an early deficiency. So, so um, I had always been reading, I had always been highlighting and underlining in, in nonfiction books and synthesizing for myself. And um, what I started to do, however many years ago was, uh, and I'll credit actually one of my one of my longtime friends, a guy named Matt French. He's like, dude, you're synthesizing all this stuff for yourself because I showed him the syntheses that I had made, and he said you got to put this out there somewhere. So um, you know, with credit to with credit to him, I you know I started to sort of share this stuff, and I originally put it out in long form, and 
you know, human attention spans being what they, what they are, even digesting a book to, you know, five pages is still too long form for, uh, for folks. So then I got advice from another person. Her name is Monica Stewart. Uh, and she is, or was, she probably still there at a company called scaled consulting. And, uh, she said, Hey, you know, chop this up and do it one, one chunk at a time. So, you know, with Matt's guidance, with Monica's guidance, I started to, to sort of chunk it up um, and, and do it one, one tip at a time on LinkedIn. And uh, I've continued to do that. I don't post every day, but I post when I, I post when I feel like I have something actionable to say. And, and I think that's, that's part of it is like, I'm, I'm, it's again, it's some living by whatever that, that the golden rule or the platinum rule, but in the social, social realm, which is I will only share content that I myself would have been delighted to consume. And I don't, I don't put, it's all, it's like data. I don't put video. I don't, it's all source attribution and, and sample sizes and statistical significance. I, I deviate from that very, very rarely. Funny enough, um, I did slightly deviate from it today because, um, as I said, I read in all domains and I'm, uh, there's, there's a, a book some people will know of, uh, was very popular a few years ago. It's called Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. It's a, it is like a bear of a book. And I, I don't, I'm not, <laughs> I only recommend books I finished and I haven't finished it. I started this book years ago. I stopped. I just couldn't take it. It's, it's a notoriously challenging book. And I'm reading it again right now. And, and the passage I just read was, was about, um, uh, he, he's talking about, he has a little, it's, it's a, it's the real world, but with some modifications. And one of them is that there's this uh, sort of communication video and telephony network that exists. And he talks about how people went from phone to video and then once they had video, they realized that like they needed their faces enhanced. And then they needed, then when the video got higher resolution, they needed like full body prostheses to make their bodies enhanced. <laughs> then eventually they just went back to phone again because they were, and I, and that, I posted something related to that on, on LinkedIn today. I'm like, phone goes to Zoom, Zoom goes to virtual backgrounds. Then I've got colleagues who are talking about unisex under eye makeup. Um, then I'm sure we're in the not too distant future, we're going to have like filters that actually digitally enhance our faces and clean us up. And then we're going to go. They already have that on Zoom. Yeah, I, I believe it. And then the next thing is like, whatever that deep fake stuff is where you, where you see Obama talking, <laughs> but it's not him. Like that's going to be us. We're just going to have a virtual likeness of ourselves. And then we're just going to say, screw it and go back to phone. So I, 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 I just, just tickled by that. So I posted that with a, with source attribution to David Foster Wallace. Nice. And, and they, um, I got an email the other day for deep fakes for, um, deep fake videos that you can do prospecting deep fake videos. So it's already there. It's, it's insanity what, what they have going on. So let's tie this back to, okay, so we're doing all of these things and to put it mildly, that's going to take some time to start building this up and doing these things. Let's talk about the situational leadership. Then me as a leader, I see my salesperson, my sales team doing these type of things. Uh, and I pulled up while you're talking, I pulled up a book that I read not too long ago um, called What Got You Here Won't mm -hmm. Get You There. And yep. it talks about a lot of times 
it's those that are slower taking off because they're helping other people that those are the ones that they, they, although they start slow, they just ramp and explode and do really, really well. So talk to that person about, okay, you see this person putting in the heavy lifting and the hard work, but we still need to make the quarter. We still need to make the month. Talk to that person. What should I be doing? Uh, if I, if I, I mean, if I got the question right, it's sort of like, I mean, a bigger, a broader question I've seen is should salespeople be investing time and energy into, you know, whatever their public persona. And I think there are different schools of thought on, on this one, uh, another book, and it's escaping me um, who said this, but uh, they basically are, it might've been Jason Jordan um, argued that like salespeople shouldn't spend time building public personas. And, and he addressed the elephant in the room, which was like, but dude, you're writing books. And his response is I'm, uh, that uh, that person who wrote this book is a professional consultant. Like their job is to, is to build brand in that way. But for salespeople, you know, I, I don't know that that's the best use of time. I, I have been recently interviewing um, uh, top sales reps. I'll ask people who's the best rep in your company and then I'll interview that rep. And very few of them are, are active on social media. And uh, most of them, I mean, cause they're just so focused on you know, on the business, on managing the opportunities, on managing their customer base. So I, I'm not, I, I'm not one to say that I, I think salespeople should be doing this. If they want to do it, then um, I, I have two, maybe two thoughts on it. One is this reminds me of a, of a, uh, it was a, it was like the worst, it was the worst um, annual review I had, I think I ever had. <laughs> and the annual review went like this. Um, I thought I had a great, like there was bad when you think you did great and then you get, you get, you know, you get a uh, negative review. So I, I just, I thought I did great because like I have a tendency to color outside the box, right? I want to get all these other, I, I think of things, I want to get them done, whatever. My boss said like, you did a massive amount, congratulations. The problem is, is that there was a box of things that you needed to do. And, you know, you filled in like three quarters of that box and you filled in a whole other box somewhere else, but that little one quarter of the box mattered that I had committed to doing that one quarter of the box. And, and my boss had committed to his boss, right, to, to, to get that done. And so it was sort of a surprise, an unpleasant surprise that that didn't get, that that didn't get done. And that really stuck with me. And, and I think this applies here too, which is like, if you're a seller and you have an awesome social media presence, but you don't hit quota, that's bad, right? Like quota is your box. So I, I think the 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 evan you know the evangelism or whatever else value added stuff that you do, make sure you're hitting quota first and foremost. And and I've seen this, right? Like I, I think some of the folks who are in companies, they develop a great, you know, sort of persona and then they leave and end up, you know, at a either at a different company or trying to start their own kind of consulting thing. I think what happened is that they, they spent so much time on themselves that they missed, they, they didn't fill in the box, like they missed quota. So anyway, that's, that's kind of one, one, uh, one piece of guidance. And I said there were two pieces of guidance. So the second one is, is like create for, create for yourself. And um, so, so put out there what you would want and 
do it with no expectation. So if you, you know, if you, if for those who have, who write uh, either write books or poetry or whatever, like you do that for yourself uh, because it is a labor of love to do that. And I think it's the same thing with this is like, I put that stuff out as a way for me to learn. And if, and like, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that folks see it now, but yeah, every day put something every day that you have something to say, put it out there, but otherwise don't, don't, don't do it. Now you also talked about your, you're creating your own data, but you're also sourcing it from others. So we don't have sales locked on our back end, right? We can't look at all that source data. So recommendation to somebody that's trying to do this on their own, again, to, to drive value, if they truly want to do this, because it seems to me what you're suggesting is put others first, right? Focus on others first. And then as you're focusing on them, be the problem solver from all of the study that you've been doing. So I noticed, I mean, my goodness, you, you might've been ADD, like you say, growing up and you only did your first book at 15, but you went to Cornell for goodness sake. So you kind of have- I some... read a lot of books after that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> a lot of books after that. And it was different times. Um, also, one of my kids is is in the college application process right now. And, and my goodness, like, these the, the, a lot of pressure on these kids today uh and and it's so hard to get in like i wouldn't have gotten in there now with what i had then you know what i mean um but no re-ask re, re me your question sorry i got off on the college tangent no 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 worries at all but but that goes to it right we don't have all of this background information and you're learning for learning's sake that's why one of the things that i noticed about you being in the you're an adjunct professor over at nyu there's no reason you need to do that. You're busy enough as it is, yet you're still doing that. So it seems like, yes, I need to be others focused. Yes, I need to be a consummate learner. So, uh, uh, you know, reading constantly, but then making application of it. And then I, I think that you said this, but I might have been making stuff up, is that, hey, the best way to the best way to learn oftentimes is teaching others by making that application of what you learned and then sharing that. So if I don't have, so I guess if I don't have sales loss back end, how can how, I start do you to do, do that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Thank you for, for the reminder on that. Um, there was, uh, I, I'm always bringing in other things. I, I, at one point I was reading books about storytelling and, and one of the things in storytelling is like, if, if, if you tell stories and your hero um, is is like has has things that no normal mortal can do outside of superhero movies, it's hard to relate to those characters, right? Because you want to you want people people want to learn from what they can do. So taking abstracting that to this, which is like if you you know I was an engineer. If you weren't an engineer. Uh, if you, uh, you know, don't have a stats background, right? If you don't have access to sales lofts backend data, like how can you do what I do? And I, I think it's, e it's quote unquote easy, which is the way I would do it is I would just basically Google any studies that have been done. And there's always like state of sales, state of customer success, state of this, state of that. But I'll just put like, you know, B2B sales study or B2B sales survey or whatever, and just go out and find all those surveys and then read them and chunk them up. Right. And, and, um, and just cite the stuff that as you, you know, what's uninteresting is that whatever 60% of the respondents to the survey were from uh, industrial manufacturing. Like that's, I can't use that. 
what is interesting is is like uh is i don't know that that 60 percent of 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 companies actually what's it what's more the studies that are most useful and that's why i got stuck on that one are the ones where they have actually differentiated high performers versus low performers so if they were to say like um high performers are far more likely when when selling to include a sales engineer early in the sales cycle like that i can do something about or uh there was one that was kind of funny which was you're, there's a correlation. It's not cause. Everything's correlation, not causation. It's very difficult to prove causation, but uh, there's a correlation between swearing and deal close rates. Like that's fascinating to me. Uh, so that's the sort of thing that is actionable and interesting, and that you could get out of studies that have been published. And as long as you source attribute, which one always should do, I think that's totally cool. And the people, and you can, you know, at mention the people that you're sourcing as well. And and they appreciate that. So yeah, you can do this on your own by just by just googling all the amazing content that's out there. So you know, there's creation and there's curation, and um, you know, for the industry you serve, be a curator. You know, I serve salespeople, but if you serve industrial manufacturers, right, be the curator of interesting, actionable insights for people who work in industrial manufacturing. That you that you sell to. So let me let me feed this back to you. It, it, to sum that up, it's really hey Google studies that are already out there. So that swearing attribution was I can't remember if it's Gong or Chorus, it was Gong. But I, yeah, Gong. And, and, and but you have to make sure they swear first. I think is the, is the key to that one, right? <laughs> <laughs> so as long as they're swearing, go go for it. Swear back um, at them. Yeah, exactly. So we we can do Google Google the studies, chunk it up. Put yourself, now you didn't say this, but I was kind of thinking through it as you're going, put yourself in their shoes to figure out what their likely problems are. Because I, I believe the way that you build up trust and relationship is that relatability, that relevance to the conversation. So if you can figure out the likely problems, and if you can't do that, ask around or call a, people, a couple of people up and just get some uh, ideas. Or my goodness, I think you can even Google, Google uh, their title, their industry, biggest challenges to face and boom, it's right there. Yeah. And then uh, from that information, then offer new approaches to solve that problem. And going back to your original, I can't remember the, the it was started with the S, that company that does, uh, that you were working with Medic to try to figure that one out. That company again was? Oh, Squid, S-K-U-I-D, Squid. Yep, Squid. Uh, like Squid did, they're getting massive PR off of doing this and didn't even get paid for it. And they likely have a better evangelist than you than any one of their clients yeah, right I'm now. Yeah, I'm a huge evangelist, absolutely. Yep. So I think that that might be a way if you want to if you wanted to really put practicalness to it. It's Google the studies, chunk it up, Google the the biggest challenges of that uh, that title, that industry. Put yourself in their shoes, figure out how to solve that problem for it, and then offer your solution when appropriate. And if not, just solve the problem. They're going to love you like Squid. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Another one I would throw in there like, is let's say you find an article. Rather than here's an article that might be interesting to you, sure, forward the article. But take out of that, you know, here's an article that you might find useful. And here's one. Here, here was the, the biggest key takeaway for me from it. And that can just be a quote out of it. But again, like make sure that's a, your company may have produced it, 
but make sure it's not self-serving bottom of the funnel. You know, I refer to it as, I shouldn't refer to it as garbage, but it's basically, you know, garbage. I, that stuff is a throwaway. Uh, make sure it's something that I can actually use whether I do business with you or not. Okay. So to sum that up, maybe it's looking at all of the information out there, find out what might be surprising to you, sum that up and point out why it's surprising and how they'd be able to apply it. And that way it's Absolutely. not that bottom of funnel self-serving kind of thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Got it. All right. Well, that's, oh, all right. So biggest mistakes that we should maybe avoid whenever we're looking at, at data. One thing that I've gotten time and time again from this conversation is, hey, if it's boring or isn't going to be helpful whatsoever, just blow it off. But what other things might we not be thinking through as we're looking at data to share to bring value? What should we avoid maybe? Yeah. I mean, the objections that so, like sometimes I'll, 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 I'll have what I'll call, I guess, a data hater, right? Like they just, they, <laughs> they, they, they don't like it. They fight it. And um, I think there are legitimate concerns, right? Uh, so the things to look for for data, one is that correlation, we talked about this once before, but correlation does not mean causation. And, and, but that's okay. It's like, I would rather see a correlation than go in with nothing. And, and if I can go in and like try something that's correlated, like using hay, and this, the effectiveness will run out over time, but using hay is correlated with higher response rates in email. Like if I say, you know, um, hey, Brian, as opposed to just Brian or hi, Brian, or what have you. And so like, I, I'm gonna try it. If it works for me, great. If it doesn't work for me, then I move on. So I, I think that's kind of one thing is just, you know, accept that correlation is not causation, but don't let that prevent you from, from doing it. I think the other thing that's important, but I think this is harder, for, for lay, you know, I'll call it lay people, like non-statisticians, is I'm really wary when I see uh, findings that don't present sample sizes. And the reason is because um, 50, let's say, you know, let's say you're, let's compare the, the numbers 15% like likelihood of somebody buying to say 10% likelihood of someone buying, right? That seems like a big difference right? 50% higher chance, 15 over 10. Um, and, but the deal is if you have a small sample size, then 15 and 10 may not actually be statistically significantly different, that you can't statistically distinguish between a 15 and a 10 if the sample size is, is small. And um, so I get wary when I don't see, when I see findings like it's 50% better to do X, Y, Z, but they don't tell me the sample size or the, you know, or the Z score. But I think Typical people, you know, don't, you know, don't necessarily look at that kind of thing, and and that that to me is important. And I get I get bothered when I see stuff like that. And I think you should just be warier. Maybe that's the advice I have: is non-statisticians should just be warier when they don't see sample sizes. Now, how big of a sample size would you would you say would be significant? It depends, but there's like you can actually. So whenever I see data, I I have this. Uh, I have this little, right, there's an app for everything. So there's a, a <laughs> website that if you just Google uh, Z-score calculator for two population proportions, uh, it'll take you, you know, you'll find one of these little calculators and you can put in, you know, the 15%, the 10%, what the sample size is. And it will tell you whether or not that those two numbers are statistically significantly different. You know, I would say that, um, you know, the usual rule of thumb in stats is you need about 30. 
samples to before something becomes significant. So 30 to 50 usually is, uh, you know, is about the right number. Um, so yeah, for on, on each one of those, but like if I compare, uh, you know, if I had sample sizes of 30 and sample sizes, uh, and then I had those 15 and 10, um, turns out that at 30, that is not statistically significantly different, right? That thir that 15 and 10 with a 15% and 10% with a sample size of 100 uh, of 30 is not statistically significant. It takes actually, you know, upwards of about 200 samples until maybe even more actually until those numbers get statistically significantly uh, different from each other. So anyway, that's that's the point is just be wary and and yeah, I would say for most differences you're looking you know, you're looking at probably hundreds. Uh, okay. You get mildly comfortable at fifty, but if you're being if you're being strict about it, you know you want to see hundreds. Nice. Okay. So be, really look for 100, 200. because I've heard in the past that two hundred is is kind of the sweet spot, but I, I was surprised about the thirty to fifty. So we can at least look at thirty to fifty, depending on what it might be. Really drive to that hundred, two hundred plus, to, and and that would be for A B testing. I mean, would that cover Anything. basically yeah. everything? Okay. Yeah. 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 Yeah, absolutely. So, All right. at, so at, two, at 200 samples, a 7% a delta becomes significant, right? So like 10% versus 17%, you can distinguish between them. Okay. Interesting. Got it. Now, and then the other thing that you said is correlation doesn't equal causation, but that does give you the idea for your hypothesis. And then it's that lean startup idea, that minimal viable product. Let's test that thing 100 to 200 times and then measure it. And then any way, all right, we're salespeople. We are notoriously not terribly detail-oriented. How are we tracking this stuff? What are we doing with it? Any best practices there for us notoriously non-detail-oriented people? Yeah, I mean, most, most, assuming you're using some kind of a sales engagement platform or whatever tool, like most of them allow you to A-B test. So you don't have to know the math. It will just tell you when something is better or not. But I think it's also just, um, I think it's okay to, you know, the human brain is a very powerful processor. It, it has its biases, but I think it's okay to let your, you know, your brain figure out whether things are working to an extent. So, you know, try stuff and see if it, and see if it works. And if you don't have whatever AB testing going on, I don't think you should, again, I don't think it's in the same way. I don't know that salespeople should be building massive social media presences unless they're hitting quota. Uh, yeah. And even if they are hitting quota, it's hard to say, but I think it's the same thing. And like, unless you're wired to be a data scientist or that's something you want to eventually do, I don't know that that's the best use of your time. Um, but some, and, and, but for some people it is because they want to go into sales operations or they want to go into engineering. Like they usually more often than not, the salespeople I've known who've learned to program and who've learned data science tend to not be salespeople two years down the road. <laughs> it's, it's a uniquely different skill set. So got it. All right. So, hey, get the hypothesis. If you're not hitting quota, don't even think about this. Just, you know, tally, tally it and just get that gut feel down. Yeah. Uh, go to your sales ops folks, reach out to Jeremy and figure out what he's got to say. And, and there's so much, so many resources out there. Just go kind of go do those things. Got it. Well, now, how about this? I mean, a best business hack whether you want to talk about for talent hiring, 
whether you want to talk about sales, how to best utilize or for scaling up the business. I mean, one best business hack that you, that you can share with us. I mean, you got a bazillion of them. So yeah, be hard yeah. For one. I'll, 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 I'll give you two, but I'll do one really quick. The one really quick is I've done a lot of data analysis on hiring since you mentioned hiring and, um, and found unsurprisingly that when you are hiring, you want to hire somebody who spent at least 24 months actively, you know, like at their immediate prior employer. And I will say like that gets me some heat when I share that. And I will tell you, I'll be the first one to tell you, like I had a 16 year run at one place. And then I had like under 24 month runs at a couple of places. So that would have made me unemployable to me. And, uh, but, but if I, if you're hiring at scale, you know, you need some things in order to set as criteria. So like that's, that is a, uh, hiring hack to get better talent. It's more expensive talent, but you'll get better talent that way. And, and again, like people like, people people end up under 24 months for reasons that are completely out of their control, right? The company implodes, they had a bad manager, there was discrimination, like there's a lot of reasons and I, my heart and my, you know, empathy goes out to to those folks. So yes, like you do also need to be a human being and and look into other factors, but um, so that, that's one. My other one can I, though- Can I dig yeah. down a little bit more deeply on that? So yeah, yeah. how about, would you even use that 24 on a, call it an SDR where it's more of an entry level, just getting started? For So in fact, I have done the analysis on SDRs and um, it turns out that the best hiring profile for an SDR is someone who worked for two years at an, a recruiting agency and you hire them out of a recruiting agency with 24 plus months. That is yeah, the single best SDR profile. Much, and would much they better- be the re- yeah. I'm sorry. Would they be the recruiter or the person doing sales for the recruiting company? They were the recruiter. Interesting. They okay. were the recruiter. That's the single best profile um, there. I, and I've studied the SDR hiring like extensively. Uh, the other good profiles, it's very, very, very rare. But if you can find someone who had a STEM degree, so they just, just decide they wanted to go into sales, super rare, but those people are disproportionately <laughs> successful. Military. Ex-military, disproportionately successful. Ex-teachers, ex-lawyers, disproportionately successful. AEs who decide to take a step, and this is not uncommon. AEs who decide to step, like maybe they got promoted to AE too, you know, quote unquote, too early, and they decide to go to a better company and take a, a short-term step back, quote unquote, into SDR. Those people are awesome as well. So, uh, so yeah, uh, it does, it absolutely does apply. You can get a cheaper SDR, but cheaper does not, does not mean higher ROI, right? Like you may pay more for one of these other types of profiles, but you will get more out of it. They're more likely to stay and be successful in your company. Have, have you given any, any thought to why STEM, why teacher, why lawyer? I mean, those are fairly academic. I mean, teacher is typically a learner. Uh, uh, STEM is going to be one that can follow process. Why lawyer? That one's throwing me. Uh, well, your hypothesis on the other ones, I think, are spot on. With lawyer, it's also like a, a lawyer um, is researching, and that's a fundamental component, right, of being a good SDR. A lawyer is also... Uh, an incredible time manager because they're billing in 15 minute increments. So they're extremely efficient with their time. 
Um, they can read and process information incredibly quickly, right? They they have great communication skills. So I think that, yeah, that's zero surprise. And one of the, I talked to a lot of CROs and that's also another one that's like, huh, there are so many CROs who, who actually went to law school, maybe worked for a year or two as a lawyer and, and uh, gave up on that for sales. It's, it's, I, you know, I'm looking for statistical aberrations. That is one of the statistical aberrations is lawyers who become CROs. That's really interesting. And I would think another piece of that is we call it in, in assessment tools, we call it high need for approval, right? Uh, it's more important for me to be liked than to get the sale or to get to the next steps or whatever the case may be. And I would think um, I like Daniel Pink's stuff. He, you know, he calls himself a recovering lawyer. And he, mm-hmm. you know, he would say that lawyers are one of the only, I think it was Daniel Pink, it might've been um, Blink. I can't remember who wrote Blink and uh, Tipping Point. Oh, that's God, Godwell. Yeah, yeah, Mal- Malcolm Gladwell, where he said, if being optimistic was a key characteristic or key trait for every single other job function, except for lawyering. So that you know, they don't have any need for approval for the most part. So that's really, really interesting. Okay, Which- so I love that. So 24 months as a recruiter or came out of um, an academically rigorous background like STEM teacher, lawyer, or has the discipline of military. So that, that is awesome. And you said yeah. you had one other. Oh, I uh, yeah. Sorry on that one, since we were on that one for a while, there's one other thing, which is a great debate in the sales world, or I don't know if it's a debate, people believe it to be true, which is ex-athlete. And I studied that too. Uh, and it turns out that at, if you look at enough data, whether or not somebody was in sports doesn't actually matter, uh, which is way counter into counter what everyone believes. The, there is an asterisk on that, which is whether they were in an individual sport versus a team sport. So if somebody was in, in an individual sport, that does correlate with success in sales. Whereas if they were in a team sport, uh, not correlated. And I think there's sort of obvious reasons for that, right? Is that sales is much more, yes, it's it's a team sale most much of the time these days, but but so much of what you do is like competition in your own head and and drive and intensity and and so on. So whatever that is, you know, gymnastics, swimming, tennis, um, whatever the whatever the sport is, those individual sports are the ones that are, are correlated with success. Interesting. My other, yeah, my other quick one was uh, one of the wisdom pieces, nuggets of wisdom I got. And since you guys talk about scale also was a nugget of wisdom I got from a CEO I worked for and his, we're in this meeting and um, somebody came up with an idea and it was seemed like a, you know, reasonable idea. And somebody else in the meeting said, oh, but that won't scale right? Like you hear that all the time. It's a way to kind of, it's an idea killer is to say, but that won't scale. And that usually ends the conversation. And with credit to the CEO, he said, um, he said, you can't, he, 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 his rebuttal was you can't scale suck. And I didn't understand at the time. And I met, met, you know, after the meeting, I, I went and I asked him like, what does that mean? And it's, it, it means kind of what it sounds like, which is, um, don't, you have to protect fragile young ideas and um, you have to sort of within reason, if you know, if you know, it can't possibly scale, obviously don't do it. But if, if there's like a, that gut feeling that you can sort of do something, you know, at, at that on paper, paper pilot uh, manual, 
like go do that and then iterate iterate on that you're going to learn there's so much value so that's my other tip is outside of sales it's it's don't even in sales i should say don't worry that something isn't scalable um try it within reason and then you can tune and and increase the productivity of whatever that motion or action is uh, let's bring this full circle let's go back to the website grader I'm sure there was a very early version before the website grader was a totally automated thing where, where like some human, right. Was, was like going to the website and calculating stuff by hand and then generating a report. I can tell you like with our subject line grader, we have five or six of these different little utilities. Like in the early days, it was, we were running data science, literally putting in a word and then running a query for a day to figure out whether that word was more powerful, was correlated with higher success in prospecting. And then over time, right, we learned and we figured out a way to, to you know, to make that so automated, we could give it away for free. So I think that's the thing is, is like, remember you can't scale suck as a way to protect fragile young ideas. Yeah, and it goes, uh, you know, it goes back to, there's nothing new under the sun, that minimal viable product. And I'm starting to tackle a little bit more design thinking. I've just started off on that, but it goes into that design thinking, testing your hypothesis, making those minimal viable products, putting it to use, and then just constantly tweaking. So I love that. Those are really, really, I hope that you're taking that. That was golden right there. Now, other resources that you might recommend, what should we be reading, whether books or podcasts, uh, some guides out there, definitely plug yours. Yeah. Uh, so whatever, whatever you can only read what excites you, you know? So, <laughs> so yeah, read what excites you. You can't force yourself to, to listen to podcasts if that's not your gig um, for the stuff that I put out there. Yeah, absolutely. Follow me on LinkedIn. That's the, and that's the best way to reach me as well as to message me on LinkedIn. Um, we do a podcast as well, the Hey Salespeople podcast. And then, um, and then we put out all this stuff that, uh, you know, you'll see in my LinkedIn feed. So I'm not going to promote it individually, but like, uh, we put out all this free stuff for, for salespeople to use like, like email grader and subject line grader and, you know, all these other things. So happy to put that out in the world. Now, and and we'll go back and sum up some of the books that you've done, but I I think that I saw in a post the other day that didn't you co-author a book too? I have, yeah, I've written a, a, a bunch of books and co-authored a couple of them. The most recent one was Leading Sales Development that I co-wrote with Aliyah Hamason. So, so we're, let's, we're, we work together, but we're birds of a feather in that we both are like revenue strategy, revenue strategy people. And we like to geek out on, on sales, uh, CS and marketing stuff. Nice. Is that on Audible yet or? I don't know if that, I should know. Um, a, a bunch of my books are on Audible. I don't know if that one is. I got to check. Well, check it out. All right. So I should I'll know that. <laughs> <laughs> I stumped you. Sorry. All right. So that's really cool. So definitely, and, and I'm telling you, gang, he's put, Jeremy's doing so much stuff out there. Definitely check it out. He brings a wealth of information and, and really knows his stuff. So um, future that you're looking at, I mean, what are you anticipating coming down the, the pike? What are you what are you watching for so you can stay ahead of the game? Yeah, I, I, I was once asked, like, what do I think sales is going to look like in five or 10 years? And I, I mean, I honestly don't know. I think that's a really hard question to answer. I'll tell you what I'm looking at right now. I'm paying a ton of attention to customer success. 
which I, I think has not is just I, I love I love when sort of you know data and process begin to really transform business segments. So it happened in marketing. It's like well maturing in sales, and I think that's coming to customer success next, and HR too. I would say, but uh, uh, like that that to me is super fascinating. So I'm thinking about the future there. Uh, I, I'm also thinking about the like we're we're very much at the cusp here where where and we've seen already a few companies who do this. It's sort of like Grammarly for sales emails that as you type your sales email, it will tune it for you, and it's hmm. not to take the genuineness and sincerity out of it. It's just to prevent yourself from making the equivalent of grammatical errors in the sales world. Like right. don't do something stupid. Uh, and it's not meant to make everything homogeneous. It's just meant to make it again, like sales grammatically correct. So I, I think that's coming. Well, I can, it's, I should, that's not a prognostication. Like there absolutely are already companies who are doing that. The other super fascinating thing to me is um, that we're finally, uh, we're finally getting the benefit of of machine learning applied to opportunity management. So hmm. systems are are be, are now. I mean, even you know, Salesloft has a component of our of our deals uh, functionality that will that will tell you where there are gaps in your deal and red flags. So I, that's another thing is like being proactively notified as a rep that you know this deal is in trouble when you may not even realize it's in trouble. And, and making proactive recommendations for what you what to do next. So I think we're finally getting you know the benefit of some of that stuff after a lot of broken promises over the years. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that you were doing that. So uh, that's a whole another show to begin with. Um, all right. Well, hey, listen, you've been so generous with your time here. I really truly appreciate it. So who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should people be reaching out to you here, Jeremy? Yeah, anyone, especially salespeople, uh, reach out to me, connect with me on LinkedIn. Just like, don't try to sell me right away. Build some trust, <laughs> build some trust first. And I don't need you to personalize the invite. In fact, I think I'm more likely to accept your your invite without personalization than like some some goofy robotic personalization. Yeah, nice. So reach out through uh, through through LinkedIn there. Love it. We'll put that in the show notes. So Jeremy, I cannot thank you enough. Great, great insights. Great, great stuff. I appreciate it. Keep putting out the good content with tons of value given. So um, take this, gang, take this, do something with it, right? Knowledge for knowledge sake is pointless. Let's do knowledge for application sake and let's get after it. Make some uh, communities thrive through awesome sales and entrepreneurship. Thanks everyone. Get after it. See ya.